We want to welcome those that are joining us. We didn't have a chance to do that. We want to say thank you for those that overcame uh, dog problems at their house today watching us, those that overcame a late breakfast to be tuned in. And uh, we're asking all of you today to open your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, if you'll find your way there, probably a psalm that many of you have never really engaged with. And uh, as you turn there, uh, just wanted to toss out and let you begin to try to focus and think about uh, years past when someone's told you about this illustration that's been around for generations. But it so epitomizes what I want to talk to you about today. The, the, the story goes that there were six blind men from birth. And uh, as they ventured through their adolescent years into manhood, they decided that they would have communal living. And so they pooled their resources and they hired some caregivers. And as young adult men, there were some things they wanted to explore. And one of those things was animal life. And so their caregivers set up a special viewing time at one of the local zoos. And these six blind men from birth now uh, went to the zoo and they were going to explore animals. Now, we know with our thinking caps on today, there were certain animals you do not want to explore. But in one particular occasion, they were going to have this opportunity to explore what an elephant was by hands-on experience. And so the caretaker and the zookeeper... They got the, this huge elephant there and these six blind men, the plan was they were going to all gather around this elephant and have some hands-on time. They took the tamest elephant that they had. The zookeeper had his little hook and his, and, his, and, and, and his little wooden rod there and he had the elephant, he was feeding him and the caregiver says, okay guys, have, have at it. It's right there in front of you. And so the first one of those six blind men headed right over there. And sure enough, he grabbed a hold of that elephant's tail. And he felt all along that tail. And out of his mouth came these astounding words. I know now what an elephant's like. An elephant is built like a rope. I feel him. Another man standing right next to him just reached out and began to touch and then put both hands up and he had one of the huge, massive, enormous hind legs. And so that blind man, as he was feeling the texture of that leg and reaching around it, simply said, I know what an elephant's like. It's like a big log. It's like a small tree. Well, just next to him, one of the men just walked up and as he had the green light to begin to touch, here, there he was at the elephant's side, that massive side. And so he just reached up as high as he could and began to feel both hands. And man, he was really getting after it energetically. He says, man, I, I don't know what you guys are thinking about. Man, this, man, the elephant feels like a great wall. That's, that's what it feels like to me, just a great wall. Well, another one of the men had found his way over there by the head of the elephant. And he had reached up and felt something thin and flimsy. Of all things, he grabbed a hold of the elephant's ear. And as he did, it must have tickled the elephant because he began flapping his ear back and forth. And that blind man said, oh, wait, wait, wait. Man, I, man this elephant is, is like a fan. I feel him. It, he's like a fan. And on the very front end was a fifth of those six men. And he had grabbed a hold of that huge trunk. And he was feeling and touching that trunk. And he said, tell you, man, guys, none of you have it right. It's like a big snake. Well, the sixth man, of all things, grabbed a hold of, in his initial grab, a tusk. 
And so he yelled out and said, well, all of you are wrong. This whole elephant thing is like a sharp sword. You know, as I thought back about that incredible story about those six men, from their perspective, the elephant was like at a moment where they were standing. It was their perception, if you will. And today, I, I come with one of the most challenging preaching text in all the Bible. It's challenging because it speaks to the very depths of our heart. It's a penetrating passage. And to be quite honest, American Christianity in the year 2021 really doesn't put much premium or value on transparency. We're not in America in this day and time and culture very authentic in our worship. And I know you're looking at me saying, Pastor, that's not, those two things weren't very nice things to say. What well, do you want to hear the truth? The truth is there are many worshipers that gather in the churches just like ours on this Sunday, the Lord's Day morning. And there's not a real premium on authenticity in our lives. And what I want to bring before you today before we ever open this text is one very important understanding. When you and I run up against life challenges, so often how we deal with those depends primarily is determined by where we are standing in terms of what we can see, what we can perceive and feel at that moment. That becomes our living truth. For each one of those six blind men, it was a completely different picture, but they had touched it, they had felt it, they had sensed it. And for them, that's what an elephant was like. And so just as diverse as those six men experienced in touching that elephant, you and I also experience all kinds of life challenges and how we perceive those by the very focal point of where we're standing really provides the, the whole format for how we relate and how we react to those things that happen to us. When a marriage begins to dissolve around us, where we're standing determines so often how we see that unfolding. When we think about parenting and the challenges that come along with that, when that is at its most challenging ebb, at those moments when it's the most difficult, where we're standing at that moment, what we sense and how we see it determines our whole focus on that particular challenge. If it's a vocational challenge or a financial challenge, or if it's dealing with one of life's toughest questions, abortion, should a woman have the right to choose? Does life prevail? Or, when, I mean, why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, those challenging questions that where we're standing determines what you and I are going to see. Nothing can be more evident than the truth of all the funerals, hundreds of funerals that I've been a part of, hundreds. Nothing determines more of the whole flow of that service, how the family responds, except from the point of view from which they stand. And so today, I just want you to know, as we head to this 73rd Psalm, it is the first Psalm of the third book of Psalms. Some of you are aware that the Psalms are divided into what we call five books. 
they're gathered together out of 150, uh, 150 psalms. Into, they're divided into five different books. Psalm 73 is the very first psalm of the third of those books. By the way, Psalms is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because it's the only book in the Bible that contains pretty much exclusively prayers. Think about that for a moment. And as you look at your text that's before you today, either on your phone or in your hand, in a book format, you begin to see a name that begins to appear. It is the second most prominent author in all of the Psalms. Asaph wrote... 12 of the Psalms. The only writer that wrote more of the Psalms over 500 per, uh, plus years was David himself. And Asaph was an interesting character. He was a pastor of sorts, but his particular responsibility was a Josh Thomas. He was the director over temple worship. His favorite instrument, the Psalms tell us, were the cymbals. And so here was an author, a pastor, a spiritual leader, the man that was instrumental in orchestrating choirs and courses and instrumentation. He was the one that led the very worship itself, at least for several years in the temple, somewhere, we don't know the exact dating from a canon standpoint, somewhere in that 500 year period, Asaph was the man that was responsible for all of those tasks. But as we begin reading, you're gonna find out in just a moment that this pastor had a big problem. He had a big challenge in his life. Now, we don't like to think about our religious leaders being human beings. We expect more of them, don't we? We almost expect perfection. But Asaph was challenged and he was struggling. And today, I just left you some white space in your bulletin. But one of the things that I hope you'll jot down is a simple statement that I'm going to read to you right now. We know that Asaph was struggling with doubt. And I just suggest to you in this statement something very important. Doubt about God is a sickness. Would you write that down? When it comes to our doubting God, it is a sickness. It's a sickness of man that we have, men and women, and it's the opposite of faith. When it comes to doubt, doubt about God, it is a sickness it's a sickness of mankind, and it's the opposite of faith. And today, as we begin reading this psalm, I want you to hear from your pastor's heart that we can know God and trust him with certainty today. Now, when it comes to doubt, doubt almost always fits very neatly under three broad umbrellas. I mean, every doubt that you can imagine probably aligns in one of these three umbrellas. It either falls under the umbrella of doubting God's existence. And that can come in many different forms, agnosticism or atheism. But those that say, well, we don't really believe there is a God. We doubt. We, it, really, unbelief goes a step further even than doubt. But under that particular umbrella that, you know, I, we, we doubt there even is a God, God's existence. There's a second umbrella that many of our doubts fall under, and that is whether or not God is good. Whether or not he's good. Does God really love me? Does God really care about me? One of the most interesting, interesting 
soul winning opportunities I've ever had. I've had the privilege of witnessing to four different Muslims. And if you ever encounter a Muslim and begin to share the gospel in your faith, one of the things that you're going to understand that they were not going, it's not going to resonate with them and they're not going to like hearing it. In fact, they'll push back in a very aggressive way. When you start talking about God's a loving God, God's a caring God, they don't believe that. They believe that God is God, but he's a God of determinism. God just determines your destiny. Everything is set with rigidity by God. He is a completely feelingless, emotionless God. He just determines things on our behalf. And so many times doubt comes under that kind of umbrella. Man, there's no way God could love me with all the things I've done. I mean, I mean, the list could go on and on. And then a third umbrella quickly is the umbrella that God is powerful. Many people would doubt how powerful God really is. And any reduction or attempt to reduce God's power and authority really is going to do nothing more than elevate man at some point. Well, I don't think God's powerful enough to heal me. I don't think God can do this. I don't think God can do that. I I think God's constrained by this particular element or this particular issue or this particular challenge. And so what I know today is that we're all, I, I love Josh Thomas's heart, don't you? Just a few moments ago, he said, you yeah, know, man, I, even on this day, I, I just doubted what God had, had laid on my heart, and I just had to get on my knees about that. You know, we all have doubts. At times, we doubt our salvation. At times, we doubt the eternal security portion of that salvation. At times, we doubt whether or not God will answer a prayer, whether he hears our prayer, whether or not he'll really forgive us. We doubt whether he can heal us. And many times, we doubt the many promises that God has given us. Can we really trust those? Is he going to fulfill all of them or part of them? And, and can God really do that? Those are all doubt. Does God really care? God doesn't seem like he cares Pastor, I'm struggling today. I don't think God cares about what I'm going through with my wife and this separation, with my kids that are estranged, with my finances that are in a mess. I don't think God cares about that. Those are all under the registry of doubts. But we're gonna see that this particular pastor had a deep-rooted challenge. He not only doubted, but he felt cheated and boy nothing fuels doubt than when we feel mistreated we've gotten the short end of the stick someone's harmed us we don't understand certain things and we begin all of a sudden to doubt God's goodness now I wish we had more time to talk about doubt in general but we don't but if we did Some of the things I would tell you are, we know that the source of doubt comes from Satan himself. In the very first few chapters of the book of Genesis, we see the sinister of doubt make his first appearance to a woman by the name of Eve. Now Eve, Satan said, are you sure that God says don't eat from this tree? No, wait, 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 now Eve, are you sure, are you confident that God meant this tree, this fruit? Are you sure? 
Now, are you sure you didn't misunderstand? Are you not misrepresenting to me, Eve, about what exactly God's intent was about eating or not eating? And for the follower of Christ, it only takes just a few pages into our Bible that we know the source of doubt. And we know if we had an opportunity, we could talk about them at length. There's all kinds of reasons for doubt. I mean, we could go on and on. Ignorance of the word of God. I mean, man, that's probably number one. We're just totally ignorant many times of what God has promised us and pledged and what he said about certain things. And therefore, we wander off into doubt. Understanding of who God is, his character. One of the things I hear most often as a pastor is, Pastor, it's just hard for me to accept that God can love me. You know now what I've done, Pastor. How could, God, how could any God ever love me, much less the God? It's, ooh, that's a lot of things to untwist there. There really is one God, but, you know, I, I just take them to Romans 5, 8. I mean, what a great starting point. God loved us so much that even in our sins, he died for us wow you know doubt can come often from sin and guilt that short circuits us doesn't it whether it be in our conduct or our conversations sin and guilt causes a short circuiting between us and our relationship with God we could go on and on previous failures cause it relationships of people that provide negativity in our lives. When you surround yourself with all the people that are negative, those non-unbelieving people around your life, all of a sudden those doubts can mainstream off of their feelings. A wrong focus can cause it and on and on and on. So today, here's what I want us to do. We're gonna spend our time and we're gonna do something that we don't typically do. We're gonna look at 28 verses. So I'm going to have to read quickly and you're going to have to listen quickly. But as we read, we could go through a three-step outline here of an incredible way in which the, the very psalmist began to, to, to explore in verse 1. There's a standing statement. Then you get to verse 2 and following, which is really more of some accusations that the psalmist is going to make. I mean, we could go through, but just for simplicity's sake, I suggest to you that there's a very personal outline of this chapter. And that's all I want you to focus on today. The first half of this chapter, 1 through 16, really is this pastor, if you will, this worship leader, if you will, just pouring out his heart and he's speaking about God. And then verse 17 is the hinge of the whole chapter. Everything swings when we get to verse 17. And then when we get to 18 through verse 28, those last 10 or 11 verses, we're going to see that Asaph is no longer talking about God. But now he's going to speak to God. And with that in mind, let's read together from the text. And I will read quickly. We'll just make some comments as we walk through. And then we'll see what God will do with this text. I just warn you, as we walk through these verses, there are some gripping moments. Let's read. A Psalm the Asaph. 
And he begins just with this incredible word, the word I. The Hebrew word I, surely. You're going to see that used three or four times. It seems to set apart sections of this psalm. He said, surely God is. Now, do you see the confession that he begins with? God is. He affirms that there is a God. And then he goes on a step further and says, God is good. He's good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. Now, I made sure that I broke that on my text that I put in my Bible today because really verse one just stands alone. There it is out there. The pastor, the psalmist, the worship leader says, let me just begin by saying this. As heavy as my heart is, I know there is a God and I know he is good and he certainly has been good to Israel throughout all of its history. And he says, I I just want you to know he's good to those who are pure in heart. And then look, as this begins to unfold, this surprising confession, verse two, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. Now that concept of feet is what we call a euphemism. It kind of gives us an indication very possibly that maybe Asaph was not in the word of God as he should have been. His footing, his foundation of the Bible. Now remember when this was written, a very scant portion of the Bible was even circulated. It was even available. So before we start hitting him over the head with all the New Testament verses, remember that, that wasn't even in existence. Remember the Psalms had not been bound up. He would have been relegated maybe to some some prophet writings, the first five books of the Bible. But Asaph was just sharing, hey, I'm slipping here. And notice what he said, I nearly lost my foothold. That's an incredible statement. It's as if he's saying, I've almost abandoned the faith. And did you notice how personal it is there in verse two? But as for me, did you see that phrase? But as for me, wow, the emotion of that. He's got a serious problem. Let's keep reading verse three. For I envied. You remember a moment ago, put your thinking caps on. I suggested to you that one of the causes of doubting was what? Sin and the guilt that comes from that sin. The pastor's telling us today. I just want you to know that there's envy in my heart. Well, that's a bold statement. It's a bold statement. Verse number four They have no struggles. Now, who is this? Out of nowhere, he begins now making a reference to someone. They, who are these they's? They, he says, I envy them. But back up to verse three, we see at the end of verse three, the answer to that, when I saw the what? The prosperity of the wicked. Now, many pastors, the ones that will venture into Psalm 73, many of them would take this route. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why are there those moments when God flourishes or prospers the wicked? And I have no stones to throw for that. That certainly would be maybe one application of this passage. I'm just suggesting to you much, much deeper things going on than that one single question. I think when you get through, you'll be in agreement. These are deep, challenging moments. Keep reading. He says, these these prosperity people, these people that are doing good, that are wicked, he says, look in verse four, they have no struggles. Now, you and I know that's not true, don't we? 
Everybody has struggles. But again, Asaph is what? He's looking from the surface of this. Where you stand determines what you see. He's discouraged. I feel like maybe he's exhausted. He's been laboring intensively. He looks around and he sees these people out there that are living wicked, atrocious lives. And he says, can you believe that? Those people have no strong. Look at their bodies, verse four. They're healthy and strong. Man, as I go see people that are sick, so very few of them, Asaph says, are those individuals that apparently are wicked people. But man, the people I'm seeing that are sick, that are struggling, are what? They're Yahweh, Jehovah God followers. And he said, that doesn't make sense to me. Keep reading. Verse five, they are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Look at verse six. Their pride is their necklace and they clothe themselves with violence. Wow. No trouble. They got peace in their life. Shalom. Look, they're not plagued by anything. They just live a life of pleasure. Verse six, they're at ease. And, 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 and of all things, they're proud to do that. Look at verse number seven. From their callous labab, L-E-B-A-B, English translation of the Hebrew word there, labab. Their, their heart, he says, comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. Hey, that tells us something. The problem with them is not a head issue, but it's a what? It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Verse number eight, they scoff, they speak with malice, with arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths, verse nine, lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of their, oh, that's what really stings. Asaph says, you know what really bothers me? They're talking about their evils. They're talking disdain about God. Surely he hears them. But look at them. Week by week, they sell more cars. They cut more timber. They keep putting money in their account. They seemingly are doing fine. They're healthy and they're talking about it, the arrogance of them to talk about it that way. Their mouths, look in verse nine, their mouths lay claim to heaven, their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, verse 10, their people turn to them and drink up waters of abundance. Verse 11, they say, how would God know? Does the most high know anything? Wow. Not only are they people that are speaking, but they're popular people. And look in verse 11 how cavalier they are about God and suggesting that God doesn't care what happens. It's, it's as if they're saying it's obvious that the happenings on earth have no bearing. God has no voice in what's going on. Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Do you see our little Hebrew word again for the English word, surely? You see it, here it is again. We know as we're reading, we got a break there. We got a pericope break. Something's changing direction here. And it's really moving from this, this strong, 
protest of what's going on to a protest now that's really focused, look at it, much more on the people that are around this situation. He's broadening the the claims here. Surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocent. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Wow. He had broadened that out to all these wicked and now he's cinching it up, bringing it back to him and he's saying, you know what, does make sense to me. I went to seminary and got my degree, Asaph says. I committed my life to the call of what God wanted me to do. Laborious effort, laboring, toughing it out. I mean, putting up with people and the challenges that come along with ministry. And then he says, and you know, it really is not worth it. They're over there doing evil things and they prosper. I'm over here trying to do the right thing, the righteous thing. And all I do is find hardship. I just get beaten down. And the psalmist is heartbroken. You know, as I read these verses, I just stop for a moment and reflect here and what a incredible concept that you know life is not fair many of you know a couple weeks ago I stood with a family in our church the virus had already taken their dad and then a few days later it took his sister their aunt Many of you know the Hepler family in our community. Already had one son killed with an accident, and a few days ago, their last child, their daughter, killed with another accident. You tell me if that's fair. Here's a family that has seven kids, and they're all thriving and healthy. Here's a family that has two, and both of them are taken by tragedy. That's not fair. There's no justice. If anybody needs to lose a child, it's somebody's got seven or eight kids. Not somebody has one. And certainly not somebody that has two and lose them both. It's not fair. And maybe you're here today and that's your heartbeat. This is not fair. And that begins to be planted in soil and begins to sprout up with a seed of doubt. Doubt comes from many different origination points. The source is always the same, Satan himself. But it can originate in many different areas. Now these next two, these next two verses break my heart, but I read them in a way. If I had spoken like that, he says, I would have been, I would have been betrayed by your children. And when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Now, verse 15 and 16 just strikes me. It strikes me. 
It strikes me because there's two things going on. Number one, quickly, Asaph understands something. Hey, I've got a responsibility here. Do you see the phrase? It's simply laid out there in verse 15. I would have betrayed your children. If I would have stood in the temple and said, let me tell you something, this whole fellowship of Yahweh, it's just, it's not worth it. He says, I couldn't, I couldn't say that. It would have brought all the worshipers down, all the brotherhood in Christ down to the ground. I, would, I couldn't say that to them. And, and we see that struggle going on. He doesn't want to do anything that would detract from the body of Christ. But whether you and I want to think about it, we know, don't we? There's something else going on. there apparently is no one he can talk to. Jeff Shreve and I sat the other night in McAllister's after our Sunday night service talking about this very thing. Most denominations throw their wounded pastors to the trash can. As Southern Baptists, we have no plan or form to reform any life in ministry. It's one strike and you're out. And pastors many times don't have anyone they can speak to. They certainly don't trust to speak to a member. They don't even trust speaking to other pastors. And when I look at Asaph, it resonates. You don't think it was a burden? You go back up there in verse 5, and he says, they are free from the common human burden They're not plagued by the human ills. We began to see, even as he's describing it, things pouring out of his own life. Cannot say these things. A lonely world cannot tell another man, cannot tell a member, cannot tell another minister, cannot trust. My my heart's weak, Asaph is saying. My mind is limited and I'm broken and there's nowhere for me to turn. And I know we must move on, but I just tell you, I leave my heart in those two verses. And as we crest this point and move to this hinge verse in verse number 17, we see the the challenge. Lord, I don't understand why you are prospering these wicked people but we see a second parallel track story going on we sense it we read it we feel it the echo from the pages of scripture lights the fire in our heart to know and illuminate to see it there's a man in ministry that's struggling and he said this is the way it was until look in verse 17 I entered the sanctuary of God. 
Now, I want you to note that. That's very significant. Where does it look like there's going to be hope? Where does it look like the light is actually going to come on? Is it at McAllister's for coffee? Is it at a prayer group in some cottage prayer meeting? That, I mean, those would both be good places. McAllister's one of the best. Can I hear an amen? Cottage prayer meeting, supposedly none better. But of all the places, this incredible connection with God happens in the worship center. And I just stopped this week to wonder, do we have that kind of heart for worship? Reflective, meditative, inspiring. Is that what we desire when we come to worship? Is that what we're feeling being fed from the very services? I just, I just wonder at times about any of our services. Then verse 18, everything changes out of this hinge. Now he sees he's going to speak directly to God. Let's read quickly. Surely, there it is again, break point. We know, hey, we're, we're, we're changing gears. You place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. Now, hasn't the worm began to turn? <laughs> Just a few moments ago, he's saying nothing happens to them. Look at them running right here like peacocks, talking about our God and getting richer, beating people down, mistreating people. Look at them prancing around here in their arrogance, their arrogance. And, and, and now all of us, he says, oh, oh, oh wait, wait, I, I've discovered something. I've discovered something in my worship with God that's important. He says, let me tell you something. These people surely are on slippery ground and you're gonna cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by tears, Quickly, verse 20, and they are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and, and ignorant. I was a brute. Some of you have this translation, a behemoth. I was a beast, in other words, before you. Wow. Does that sound like a little bit of a confession to you? <laughs> what is he saying there? Maybe he forgotten about Isaiah 48, 22. That was circulated at that time. And, and it simply said, there's, there's no wicked. There's, I mean, there's no peace for the wicked. God had already said that. And, and it's incredible. He's flashing back here to his heart. And he says, you know, I was saying shalom was on them. Peace was on them. I want to take that back. I was completely wrong. I was, I was ignorant about that. It's as if he says, you know, I was in envying the things that they have and I was completely wrong. I behaved as a beast. In verse 23, look at this reorientation. Really, that was really a reorientation more to himself, wasn't it? But reorientation to the purpose there in verse 23, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand, not any hand, but my right hand, the, the hand of honor. You hold me by in a, in a position of honor, God, is what he's saying. You guide me with your counsel, verse 24, and afterward, you will take me into glory. 
Wow. How many times has that verse brought people in our culture great, great comfort, especially around a death scenario? Look at those words again in verse 24. You guide me in your counsel, and afterward, you take me into glory. Wow. If you don't have a life verse, that might be a good one. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Wow. Verse 27. I want you to look at this spatial picture. I love this. Look at the spatial picture. Those who are far from, do you see that? He says, now, when you go back to those wicked, what I'm realizing is they're far from. They're way out there. They're doing their thing. They're far from you. Well, they're going to perish. They will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. Again, the certainty. And then look, but as for me, it is good to be what? Here's the spatial flip side of that, to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge and I will tell you and I will tell of all your deeds. Isn't it, isn't it great to see that Asaph has his purpose back? God, I just want you to know my purpose is that I am going to tell everyone of your deeds. Thy works, as one translation shares it. Can we just wrap up by me saying about doubt? Did you come to this place with some doubt? Are, you, are there some doubts in your heart? Do you, do, do you doubt that God cares? Even though God tells us in his word, cast all of your cares, all of your anxiety on me because I care for you for some, that doesn't seem to be enough. Maybe you're here today and you don't think God hears you. Even though God's word tells us, call to me and I will answer you and I'll tell you of great and unsearchable things. Just call on me and I will hear you and I'll answer you. For some, that's not enough. Maybe you're here today and you just wonder if God's even there, 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 there. Are you even there, God? Are you home? Anybody there? Even though God's word tells us, God promises us that he'll never leave us and he will never forsake us. On the way over this morning, I was just reminded of kind of an interesting thing, uh, just riding along there thinking about what we were going to share this morning and you know, the answer to Aesop's challenge initially, even though we may think of it as a very tough question, why does God prosper the wicked? Really, there's an easy answer to that, isn't there? The answer is in the cross. 
The question is there and the answer is there. God, why do you allow certain righteous people to suffer? And the cross itself answers this very challenging question. See, when we look on the cross, we know God's heart about suffering. We see that because he's willing to send his own son into a format of terrible suffering. To take on swallowing himself all of the agony of sin, all of the weight of that burden for those that committed it so that they can be innocent by his incredible cleansing power. It's out of that resurrection and that cross and his return that it really speaks into this whole element of God's heart on suffering. Doubt. Your faith can move mountains, but I'm just telling you today, your doubt can create them. And so today, as we pray, I've been just asking God for months now, I'm going to keep asking him. God, would you create in our church a desire for real authenticity, transparency? We are a tough nut to crack. But God is up to the task. I yearn for that. I yearn for a church where someone can just share their heart and not be judged. As we sat there last Sunday evening and just began to just touch the surface with 35 men or so, just to watch the potential in that room excited me. But I want them to be able to come into this place and feel that same transparency. And there's much, much work to be done. Last week, I was so excited when I left the sanctuary about how things went for Sunday morning. Not the preaching, it was terrible, but the music was so inspiring. And a lady ran up to me and said, look, Pastor Mike, I want to talk to you about this. 43 times we sang that phrase, God is so good, 43 times. And just a wet blanket. And I got in the car to go to lunch and I thought, that lady spent six minutes out of the worship service counting how many times that phrase was sung. I don't want us to go there. 
God has a greater plan for us than that. He's better than that, and you're better than that. So as we pray, I'm going to pray for God's desire for transparency among his people. I'm going to pray for authenticity. I'm going to pray for services that are meditatively and reflectively and scripturally right down the track of where God wants us to go. I'm going to keep asking him. God, they burr up against man. But you do the work. You change the climate. You create in your sanctuary an image and reflection of you. Each week, the music sets the stage. Life transformation depends on our hearts being prepared. Life transformation depends on the proclamation of his word. But life transformation, don't miss this, depends upon a response, a biblical response from God's hurting hearts. Did you hear Asaph? God, I was wrong. God, I acted like a beast. I had sin in my heart. I wasn't where I needed to be with the word of God. My footing slipped and I almost lost it all. But God, you brought me back in your sanctuary. Let's pray together. Lord, you know I love Oakland Heights Baptist Church, not because it's OHBC, but because it's your bride. It is one of the bodies that you have died for and that you've created and you have given us this pledge that the very gates of Hades will not be able to stand against this great work that you've created. And Father, I ask today that you would create an environment of complete transparency in this place, authenticity, that there would be a day and time where there could be such a level of trust that is built in this place, in this fellowship, in this body of believers, that we can openly share about the struggles that we have without fear. Father, I pray for the hearts that are here today that may have doubt, that may be struggling even as we leave this service, they out into that parking lot and on their way to activities and that doubt still remains. I pray that you would insert one of your many promises into a heart and a life and do the work through your spirit that needs to be done. Father, there may be leaders of this church, deacons that have doubts. There may be pastors that have doubts. There may be godly men and women, spiritual men and women that are just in a tough place right now. And the life circumstances will always depend on how we see things from where we stand. 
So Father, in those moments when we reach up and touch blindly a side or a tail or a leg or a tusk of life, I just pray that in those moments you'll reveal what you want to do and what you want us to see, not what we are so limited in seeing. I pray that you would show us a glimpse of your true glory, your goodness, your optimism for the days ahead when we can be together, not negativity. For Father, many doubts come out of the very simple form of other believers that have doubting hearts as well. Now, Lord, would you take the proclamation of your word, all 28 verses, and let those verses resonate in our hearts long after we go from this place. Let your word stand alone. Let the inadequacies of the presenter fade away and your word be prominent and preeminent. We exalt you and your word over all other things. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you look this way? In just a few moments, we're going to stand to our feet. We're going to continue our time of worship. You were given a little bulletin or a card, or maybe you picked up one as you came into this place of worship. And today, I, there's no way that you can be a follower of Christ without a response, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. By faith. Faith is the certainty of who he is. Despite you not seeing him, you believe in him. And maybe today on that card, you just want to drop it in one of the boxes. Maybe there's a need in your life that you just want to share. Maybe you're getting the sense that there are a few people in this place that really care about you. And our staff would love this week to take some time in your convenience to sit down and talk to you and to encourage you or just to pray with you about something going on in your life. So I'm going to encourage you before you leave this place of worship, this sanctuary of God today, that you might just on that little note card, it's perforated, you can tear it away, guest card on one side, prayer information on others, just write a short note, Pastor, just want you to be praying about this. Pastor, I'd love to talk to you or one of the other pastors this week. Pastor, I want you to know today that I'm entrusting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And if you'll just drop that in the box, I would dare say that before the clock strikes 5 p.m. today, someone will probably call him.